Capital, my dear Watson. Let us return to our humble abode. Two two one B Baker Street, please, Kevin. From London, we present The Devil's Foot by Michael Hardwick, based on the short story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The Devil's Foot. It was in the spring of 1897 that Sherlock Holmes's iron constitution showed some symptoms of giving way in the face of constant hard work of a most exacting kind. And he was induced at last, on the threat of being permanently disqualified from work, to give himself a complete change of scene and air. Thus it was that in the spring of that year, we found ourselves together in a small cottage near Poldew Bay, at the further extremity of the Cornish Peninsula. The vicar of the parish, uh, Mr. Roundhay, we came to know as something of an archaeologist, and we also met his lodger, Mr. Mortimer Tregenis, an independent gentleman who increased the clergyman's scanty resources by taking rooms in his large, straggling house. These were the two men who entered abruptly into our little sitting room as we were smoking together shortly after our breakfast hour. Mr. Holmes, a most extraordinary and tragic affair has occurred during the night. We can only regard it as a special providence that you should chance to be here at this time. In all England, you are the one man we need. Mr. Roundhay, I really must remind you that Mr. Holmes is here for the benefit of his health. And, uh... No, 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 Watson, please. Oh, now, Holmes. No, I, I insist. You were saying, Mr. Roundhay? Uh, thank you. Uh, shall I speak, Mr. Tregenis, or... Perhaps it'll be for the best, Becker. Uh, very well. Now, I may explain then, Mr. Holmes, that our friend here spent last evening in the company of his two brothers, Owen and George, and of his sister Brenda, at their house of Tredanic Water, which is uh, near the old stone cross upon the moor. He left them shortly before ten o'clock, playing cards round the dining room table in excellent health and spirits. This morning early, he walked over there. When he arrived, he found an extraordinary state of things. His two brothers and his sister were seated round the table exactly as he'd left them. The cards still spread in front of them, and the candles burned down to their sockets. The sister lay back stone dead in her chair, while the two brothers sat on either side of her, laughing, shouting, and singing. The senses stricken clean out of them. All three of them, the dead woman and the two demented men, retained upon their faces an expression of the utmost horror, a convulsion of terror which was dreadful to look upon. Nothing had been stolen or disarranged, and there is absolutely no explanation of what the horror can be which has frightened a woman to death and two strong men out of their senses. I will look into this matter. On the face of it, it would appear to be a case of a very exceptional nature. Holmes, I must beg you... No, if you please, Watson. Mr. Tregenis, I must ask you a few questions. Ask what you like, Mr. Holmes. It's a bad thing to speak of, but I'll answer you with the truth. Tell me about last night. I stopped there, as the vicar said. My elder brother, George, proposed a game of whist afterwards. We sat down about nine o'clock. It was a quarter past ten when I moved to go. I left them all round the table. As merry as could be. Who let you out? I let myself out. The housekeeper, Mrs. Porter, had gone to bed. Uh-huh. The windows, how were they? The windows? Were closed. Of course. I see. Uh, this morning, everything in the room was as you left it last night? Exactly. 
Yet there they sat, driven clean, mad with terror, and poor Brenda lying dead of fright. Why, I'll never get the sight of that room out of my mind as long as I live. The facts, as you state them, are certainly remarkable. I take it you have no theory yourself to account for them. It's devilish, Mr. Holmes. Devilish. It's not of this world. Something has come into that room and dashed the light of reason from their minds. What human contrivance could do that? I fear that if the matter is beyond humanity, it is certainly beyond me. Yet we must exhaust all natural explanations before we fall back upon such a theory as this. I quite agree, Mr. Holmes. As to yourself, Mr. Tregenis, I take it you were divided in some way from the rest of your family since they lived together and you had rooms apart. That is so, Mr. Holmes. Though the matter is past and done with. We were a family of tin miners at Redruth. We sold out to a company and retired with enough to keep us. I won't deny there was some feeling about the division of the money. But it was all forgiven and forgotten. And we were the best of friends together. Looking back at the evening you spent together, does anything stand out in your memory as throwing a possible light on the tragedy? Any clue which will help me? Nothing at all, sir. You left them then without any premonition of evil? None at all. Remarkable. Most remarkable. I think we had better visit Tredanic Walter without further delay. No, I must no, 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 Watson. You... It's no use protesting. Oh. I confess that I have seldom known a case which at first sight presented a more singular problem. Uh, this is the cottage, Mr. Holmes. I see. But what is this carriage? My brothers, George and Owen, they're, they're taking them away to Helston Asylum. Oh, dear me. Careful, Holmes. You've upset that watering can. Oh, it's all over my feet, too. My dear Watson, I do apologize. I wasn't looking where I was treading. Oh, that pitiful sight. Oh, tragic. Terrible thing. Terrible. Come, Mr. Dragonis. Brace yourself if you can. Thank you, sir. Now, let us go inside and see what we shall find. Uh, this is Mrs. Porter, the housekeeper, Mr. Holmes. A terrible business for you, Mrs. Porter. Yes, that, sir. I understand you heard nothing at all in the night time. Not a song, sir. And this morning? Well, uh, I come down and, and there they were. I, I fainted away. And then? I came to again soon, sir, and... There they were still, gibbering like good monkeys, and and the poor mistress, sir. Oh. I opened the windows to let the morning air in. It was that stuffy, and out they ran to, to send the land for the doctor. And everything in this room is as you found it? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, the, the cards all over the table, yes, and the candles burned down. Oh, uh, only the chairs has been pushed back, sir. Ah, I see they had a fire in the grate last night. It was lit after I arrived. The night was cold and damp. Ah, yes. Well, uh, thank you, Mrs. Porter. Thank you, sir. What are you going to do now, Mr. Holmes? With your permission, gentlemen, Dr. Watson and I will now return to our cottage. 
But I'm not aware that any new fact is likely to come to our notice here. Oh, Mr. Holmes. I... In the meantime, I wish you both good morning, gentlemen. Now, I take it in the first place that neither of us is prepared to admit diabolical intrusions into the affairs of men? Certainly not. Very good. There remain three persons who have been grievously stricken by some conscious or unconscious human agency. Yeah. Now, when did this occur? Well, after Mortimer Tregenis left the room, by all accounts. Within a few minutes afterwards. That's a very important point. The cards still lay upon the table. It was already past their usual hour for bed. Yet they had not changed their position or pushed back their chair. Yes, that's true enough. But, Holmes, what about Mortimer himself? What were his movements after he left the room? Oh, I had already considered that. Oh, how? Knowing my methods as you do, you were, of course, conscious of the somewhat clumsy watering can expedient <laughs> by which I obtained a clearer impress of his foot than might otherwise have been possible. The wet, sandy path took it admirably. Oh, so that's why I got a soaking one. My apologies. It wasn't difficult, having obtained a sample print, to pick out his track among others. He appears to have walked swiftly away in the direction of his lodgings to the vicarage. Now, then that only leaves Mrs. Porter. Oh, she's evidently harmless. You perceive our difficulties. Oh, they're only too clear. Oh, we have a visitor, Watson. A visitor? How do you know? His footmarks are clearly discernible upon the path leading up to our door. But not away from it. Let us inquire within. Sherlock Holmes? The same. Hmm. My name is Sterndale, Dr. Leon Sterndale. You may have heard of me. Of course, my dear sir. This is my friend, Dr. Watson. How do you do? Oh, I'm honored to make your acquaintance, Dr. Sterndale. We have seen you once or twice in the distance upon the cliffs, Dr. Sterndale. I fancy that lions are a little scarce about these parts, sir. I find all the lions I want in Africa, Mr. Holmes. But even an explorer must have his fill of his old familiar places from time to time. I quite understand. Mm. Mr. Holmes, you'll pardon this intrusion, but I may tell you that I'd got as far as Plymouth on my way back to Africa when the news reached me this morning of this terrible happening. I came straight back again to help in the inquiry. You know the Tregenis family, then? Oh, very well. I might go so far as to call them cousins on my Cornish mother's side. This has been a great shock to me, Mr. Holmes. And you've lost your boat as a result of coming back. Oh, no matter. I can take the next. Friendship indeed, eh, Watson? Admirable. It... But surely this event could not have found its way into the Plymouth Morning Papers. No, sir. I heard a telegram. Might I ask for whom? You're very inquisitive, Mr. Holmes. It is my business. Well, then it was from... from Mr. Roundhay, the vicar. Thank you. And now perhaps you would not mind telling me if your suspicions point in any particular direction? No, I can hardly answer that. I may say that I have not cleared my mind entirely on the subject of this case, but I have every hope of reaching some conclusion. It would be premature to say more. Yeah, then I've wasted my time and I need not prolong my visit. Good day, gentlemen. Good day, Dr. Stern. Well, upon my word... Holmes, what are you doing? Having permitted Dr. Leon Sterndale a few minutes' start, I propose to follow in his footsteps. I doubt whether you'll see me again before he... Oh, but Holmes! Uh... Really, Holmes, you look exhausted. It, it, it's too bad, you know. Is there a telegram for me, Watson? Uh, yes, there was. It came some time ago. Oh, thank you. Hmm, from the Plymouth Hotel. 
I learned the name of it from the vicar, and I wired to make certain that Dr. Sterndale's account was true. And was it? It appears that he did indeed spend last night there. Ah, oh, well, a good night's sleep, and we may soon leave our difficulties behind. Coming! Who on earth is it at this time of the morning? Just a moment. Ah, oh, good morning, Vicar. Come in. Oh, thank you. Why, Vicar? Mr. Holmes! Mr. Holmes, we are devil-ridden! My poor parish is devil-ridden. Satan himself is loosening it. We are given over into his hands. My dear vicar, calm yourself. No, no, I tell you, we Nothing are... Nothing of the sort, sir. Now, pray tell me what has happened. Mr. Mortimer Trigenis died during the night. What? With exactly the same symptoms as the rest of his family. Oh! Mr. Roundhead, is your dog cart outside? Yes, yes, yes. Can you fit us both into it? Yes, I can. Then we're entirely at your disposal. But hurry, hurry, before things get disarranged. This man died of fright. Terror. You see the contortion of the limbs? How incredibly stuffy it is in here. I remarked on that myself earlier, Mr. Holmes. My servant drew my attention to that lamp smoking on the center table. She had to throw open all the windows upon entering the room, but I did not permit her to put out the lamp so that you could see everything precisely as it had been. An admirable precaution, Vicar. <coughs> then let us examine the lamp first. Oh. <coughs> oh, the smoke. I, I really think we must turn it out. I'll do it. Thank you. Oh, yeah. That's better. Hmm. Now then, just scrape a sample of this ash from under the talc shield and place it in this envelope. Good. So much for the lamp. Now, Mr. Roundhay, may I examine Mr. Tregellis' bedroom? Uh, certainly. It's immediately above this room. Find anything of interest, Holmes? Yes, indeed. The bedroom window and the sitting room lamp. Each is suggestive, and together they're almost conclusive. The lamp? Certainly. You remember, Watson, that there is a single common point of resemblance in the varying reports which have reached us? Mm -hmm. This concerns the atmosphere of the room in each case. Yes. You may recall that Mrs. Porter told us she fainted upon entering the room at Tredanic Wharfer and later threw open the windows to let the air in as it was so stuffy. That's right, sir. In the case of Mortimer Tregenis himself, you cannot have forgotten the horrible stuffiness of the room when we arrived, although the servant had opened the window. Terrible, yes. I remember it clearly. Then you will admit that these facts are very suggestive. In each case, there is evidence of a poisonous atmosphere. In each case also, there is combustion going on in the room. In the one case, a fire, and the other, a lamp. The fire was needed. It was a chilly, damp night. But the lamp was lit long after it was brought daylight. But why? Surely. Because there is some connection between three things. The burning, the stuffy atmosphere, and finally the madness or death of those unfortunate people. That is clear, is it not? Oh, it appears to be. <laughs> At least we may accept it as a working hypothesis. The facts in each case, therefore, seem to bear out the theory of a poison which worked by combustion. Yes, it seems a likely idea, Holmes. With this train of reasoning in my head, I naturally looked about in Mortimer Tregenis's room to find some remains of the substance. Yes. The obvious place to look was the lamp. There, sure enough, I perceived a fringe of brownish powder which had not yet been consumed. Half of this I took, as you saw, and placed it in an envelope. Yes, so why only half, Holmes? 
Oh, it is not for me, my dear Watson, to stand in the way of the official police force. I leave them all the evidence which I found. The poison still remained upon the talc, had they the wit to find it. And now, Watson, we will light our own lamp. Yes. We will, however, take the precaution to open our window to avoid the premature decease of two deserving members of society. Now, if you will seat yourself in the armchair near that open window... Well, here. Good. Yes. And I will place this other chair yes. opposite you so that we may be the same distance away from the poison and face to face. Uh. The door we will leave ajar. Good. Uh. Each is now in a position to watch the other and to bring the experiment to an end should the symptoms seem alarming. Is that all clear? Oh, it's perfectly. Well, then, I take our powder, or what remains of it, and I lay it above the burning lamp. So. Now, Watson, let us sit down and await developments. They were not long in coming. I'd hardly settled in my chair before I was conscious of a thick, musky odor, subtle and nauseous. At the very first whiff of it, my brain and my imagination were beyond all control. A thick, black cloud swirled before my eyes, and my mind told me that in this cloud lurked all that was monstrous and inconceivably wicked in the universe. At the same moment, in some effort of escape, I broke through that cloud of despair and had a glimpse of Holmes's face, white, rigid, and drawn with horror, the very look which I had seen upon the features of the dead. It was that vision which gave me an instant of sanity and of strength. I dashed from my chair, threw my arms round Holmes, and together we lurched through the door and threw ourselves down upon the grass plot. Upon my word, Watson, I owe you both my thanks and an apology. But for your help, I might never have got from that room. Yeah. But it was an unjustifiable experiment, even for oneself, and doubly so for a friend. I'm really very sorry. You know, it is my greatest joy and privilege to help you, Holmes. <laughs> I, uh, I take it you have no longer a shadow of doubt as to how these tragedies were produced. Oh, no, no, whatever. But the cause remains as obscure as before. Yes. Now, come, let us sit down in the arbor here, discuss it together. Good, good idea. Now, I think we must admit that all the evidence points to this man, Mortimer Tregenis, having been the criminal in the first tragedy, though he was the victim in the second one. We must remember that there is some story of a family quarrel followed by a reconciliation. Yes, yes. How bitter that quarrel may have been or how hollow the reconciliation we cannot tell. When I think of Mortimer Tregenis with that foxy face and those small, shrewd, beady eyes behind the spectacles, uh -huh. he is not a man whom I should judge to have been of a particularly forgiving disposition. Mm, I'm inclined to agree with you. But if he did not throw this substance into the fire at the moment of leaving the room, who did, sir? Who indeed? Had anyone else come in, the family would certainly have risen from the table. Besides, in peaceful Cornwall, visitors do not arrive after ten o'clock at night. So we take it that all the evidence points to Mortimer Tregenis. And his own death was suicide. Well, it is on the face of it a not impossible supposition. The man who had the guilt upon his soul 
of having brought such a fate upon his own family might well be driven by remorse to inflict it upon himself. There are, however, some cogent reasons against it. What are they? There is one man in England who can answer that. Who's that? And, uh, and by all the saints, here he is, and a little before his time. Oh, Dr. Sterndale. Perhaps you would kindly step this way, Dr. Sterndale. You sent for me, Mr. Holmes. I heard your note about an hour ago, and I have come, although I am at a loss to know, sir, what you're going to have to speak about which affects me in such a very intimate fashion. The killing of Mortimer Tregenis. I have lived so long among savages and beyond the law that I have got into a way of being a law to myself. You would do well, Mr. Holmes, not to forget it. I have no desire to do you an injury. Nor have I any desire to do you an injury, Dr. Sterndale. Surely the clearest proof of it is that knowing what I know, I have sent for you and not for the police. What my next step may be will depend entirely on the nature of your own defense. My defense? Yes, sir. My defense against what? Against the charge of killing Mortimer Tregenis. Do all your successes depend on this prodigious power of bluff? The bluff is upon your side, Dr. Leon Sterndale, not upon mine. As a proof, I will tell you some of the facts upon which my conclusions are based. When you last left here, you went to the vicarage, waited outside it for some time, and finally returned to your cottage. How do you know that? I followed you. I saw no one? That is what you may expect to see when I follow you. You spent a restless night at your cottage, and you formed certain plans, which in the early morning you proceeded to put into execution, leaving your door just as day was breaking. You filled your pocket with some reddish gravel that was lying heaped beside your gate. You then walked swiftly for the mile to the vicarage, passing through the orchard and the side hedge, and coming out under the window of the lodge of Tregenis. It was now daylight, but the household was not yet stirring. You drew some of the gravel from your pocket and you threw it up at the window above you. I believe you're the devil himself. It took two or three handfuls before the lodger came to the window. You beckoned him to come down. He dressed hurriedly and descended to his sitting room. You entered by the window. There was an interview, a short one, during which you walked up and down the room. Then you came out and closed the window, standing on the lawn outside smoking a cigar and watching what occurred. Finally, after the death of Tregenis, you withdrew as you had come. Devil take you. Now, Dr. Sterndale, how do you justify such conduct? And what were the motives for your actions? If you prevaricate or trifle with me, I give you my assurance that the matter will pass out of my hands forever. I, uh, I... This is why I did it. This photograph. Brenda Tregenis. Yes. Brenda Tregenis. For years I have loved her. For years she has loved me. There is the secret of my Cornish seclusion which people have marveled at. I see. I couldn't marry her. I have a wife who left me years ago and yet whom I could not divorce under the deplorable laws of England. For years, Brenda and I waited for this. Proceed. The vicar knew he was in our confidence. That was why he telegraphed to me and I returned. Look, you you see this? Ah, radix pedis diaboli, devil's um, devil's foot root. What is it? The root is shaped like a foot, half human, half goat-like. Uh, hence the fanciful name given by a botanical missionary. Well, sir, one day only a couple of weeks ago, I showed this Mortimer some of my African curiosities. I told him of the strange properties of this powder, how it stimulates those brain centers which control the emotion of fear. 
and how either madness or death results. I also told him how European science would be powerless to detect it. I well remember how he plied me with questions about it. And I've realized since that when my back was turned, he must have abstracted some of that powder. But I thought none of this until the vicar's telegram reached me at Plymouth. When Mortimer Tregenis thought you'd be safely away at sea. Yeah, exactly. I was convinced that Mortimer Tregenis had used the devil's foot powder in his family with the idea that he'd become sole guardian of their joint property. And in doing so, he killed Brenda. One being whom I, I have ever loved, or who has ever loved me. My soul cried out for revenge. I determined that the fate which he had given to others should be shared by himself. And now I, I have told you all. The rest you know. We had better hear what transpired between you and him at his lodgings. Well, simply that I told him I had come both as judge and as executioner. I lit the lamp, put the powder above it, and threatened to come back into the room and shoot him if he should try to get out. The wretch was paralyzed with fright at the sight of my revolver. He died in five minutes. How he died. Uh, but he endured nothing that my innocent darling had not suffered before him. Perhaps if you loved a woman, Mr. Holmes, you would have done as much yourself. At any rate, you can do what you like with me. There is no man living who can fear death less than I do. What were your plans? I had intended to bury myself away in Central Africa. My work there is only half finished. Go and do the other half. I, at least, am not prepared to prevent you. I, oh, Mr. Holmes, I... I good day. Good day, Dr. Watson, uh -huh. I have never loved. But if I did, and if the woman I loved had met such an end, I might act even as our lawless lion hunter has done. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But I think you must agree this is not a case in which we are called upon to interfere. You would not denounce the man. Uh, certainly not, Holmes. Certainly not. That was The Devil's Foot by Michael Hardwick, based on a short story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes was played by Carlton Hobbs, and Dr. Watson by Norman Shelley. Production for the BBC was by Robin Midgley. <laughs>